This is Not Quite Dead, a gal pal horror movie discussion podcast. We do deep dives on our favorite scary movies, but sometimes we really just like to keep it shallow. I'm your host, Kate. I'm Megan. Get ready for all the spoilers. Kate, I would like to start off with an apology to you and your husband for what was probably not an ideal date night (laughs) selected by 12 year old Megan in 1996 when she saw this thought it was good have you seen this movie since then nope (laughs) I have not (laughs) it's remarkably bad I felt so bad like five minutes in I was like oh Kate's gonna be so mad at me (laughs) In her very kind Kate way. I wasn't mad. I was disappointed. (laughs) I was too. You know, I remember thinking the ghost coming out of the wall and the carpet looked really cool at the time. Like, I remember that image. And I think if that had been the worst of it, this movie would have been fine. But the CGI was, it didn't age. The jokes didn't age. The story is kind of nutty characters aren't great i don't know it's all over the place we are talking the 1996 movie the frighteners does anyone know this movie (laughs) i had never heard of this before i thought a lot of people would know about this because it's a peter jackson vehicle it was one of his really early films he he started in horror and transitioned to lord of the rings (laughs) And, oh my God, wow, he should stick with fantasy because this was not scary, not funny, not well acted. I just, I'm, I was grasping at straws to find things I liked about it. I know. I felt like going into this movie, I learned, you know, the bare minimum. I learned it was a Peter Jackson directed movie with Robert Zemeckis producing, and that Michael J. Fox was starring. And so I thought, oh, this is just one of those like cultural moments that I missed or didn't know about or was maybe too young for in the 90s. To your credit, it seems like a cult classic. It it has all of the makings of a cult classic, including the fact that it made no money at the box office. (laughs) It barely broke even, right? Barely, yeah. It had a $26 million budget, which for the time, for this level of horror comedy, like pretty freaking high, grossed $29 million. And then like did a little bit better once it was was released onto Laserdisc. (laughs) Laserdisc. (laughs) Yes. This is another movie that my parents just randomly bought me on VHS. They saw it and they were like, she might like this. And they just gave it to me. And I was 12. I did like it. I thought it was good. I mean, I enjoyed it anyway. You're not alone. Rotten Tomatoes and just the general consensus at the time that this movie came out, it was a 67%. Most critics who watched this movie liked it. What? Yeah. It was Oh my goodness. It was a complete 67. product of Yeah, complete product of its time. People were really willing to give a lot of leeway to Michael J. Fox. I mean, it's got a Danny Elfman soundtrack 
And it, I think, was one of those funky 90s genre movies that, you know, it didn't do great in theaters, but people were like, yeah, this was pretty fun. It's just a relic. It's a relic of the mid-90s. I think it's generally a forgotten relic also. I don't, you know, you said it has the makings of a cult classic. I never hear anybody talking about this movie. This movie does not seem to have a seat at the warm and fuzzy table. Who else is in this movie? I mean, Michael J. Fox basically plays himself. He's very Marty McFly in this. Lovable dude. Lovable childlike dude. Yeah, he is. We have uh, also starring Trini Alvarado. She is Lucy, the physician slash love interest for Michael J. Fox's Never heard of her. Me neither. Has she done anything else? Yeah. Trini Alvarado was also in Little Women. She was in a handful of 80s and 90s movies, Times Square, Satisfaction, Stella. It seems like her roles in Little Women and The Frighteners were her biggest roles, though. Oh, boy. Well, that's a bummer for her. (laughs) Unfortunately for Trini. (laughs) You know, right after this movie, Michael J. Fox was in Mars Attacks. Oh, I would say that's a step up. (laughs) Yeah, that makes – yeah, it it is. (laughs) It's from one almost cult classic to an actual cult classic. Okay, Kate, the other person I wanted to call out from this movie especially is Jake Busey, one of your favorites, a product of Hollywood nepotism. I know. I saw him and I was like, that's a Busey. (laughs) (laughs) He's been in quite a few movies, actually, that I've seen. I feel like he's this guy that just sort of blends in because he just looks like generic white guy with blonde hair. I don't know. But he was in Identity. He was in Home Fries, Starship Troopers, Twister, Contact. He's been in a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. He's not the only like Nepo person in this movie, though, too. We saw John Aston. He's the Old West ghost. He is father to Sean Aston, who eventually stars in Lord of the Rings. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> Wait, so who's the nepotism guy? Is it the dad or is it the son? Who was well, writing whose coattails? I guess Sean would be writing the coattails. What a bummer. By now he's been in Goonies. So that's right. I think he, yeah, I think he's planted his flag. Oh, I hated that ghost. Oh, the word. The Old West ghost. Yeah. Awful. Some truly like horrific, not in like a fun, scary movie kind of way, but like makes me want to peel my skin off, (laughs) like never have to watch this again kind of way. Actually, I hated all the ghosts. I don't want to single him out. Uh, He just we'll get to we'll get to what we thought about the ghosts. But yeah, I especially didn't like him. Troy Evans. I love Troy Evans. And I'm always happy to see him show up in a movie. He was the, what was he, the sheriff? He was the main cop. Mm-hmm. He usually plays a cop or an army guy. Yeah, he was actually a sergeant in the army, so that makes sense. But I really love that actor. Again, I'll call out, he was in The Stand. He's been in lots of things, but I do love The Stand, and he was in it. 
we do get a cameo ghost from R. Lee Ermey, essentially reprising his exact character from Full Metal Jacket. Just a really bizarre little reference thrown into this mix. I think they just wanted him for the gimmick. You know, he always plays this role. He's always an asshole sergeant or coach. He didn't really add anything to the film, but he was there playing himself. It was like they were making a joke from a movie that was 10 years old at this point. Full Metal Jacket came out 10 years before this movie did. (laughs) I'm pretty sure every role he plays in which he's a drill sergeant is basically making fun of Full Metal Jacket or riffing off of Full Metal Jacket. Because that's really all he does. I know. I feel like there's no way to make it funny anymore, though. No. And he's dead. So it's over. (laughs) Good for him. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone else from the cast that we should call out before we get into the plot and then dig into this fun, fun movie? Uh, Honestly, I barely knew anybody in this movie aside from, from those guys. So I think we should jump into the plot so that we can tear it to pieces. Sorry if you guys like this movie. Great. If you like this movie, please write us and tell us why. I would I would genuinely like to hear it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And if you haven't seen it, watch it and please let us know what you think. I know. All right. Take it away, Kate. Michael J. Fox stars as Frank Bannister, a con man slash ghost seer, ghost whisperer type guy who following the very traumatic death of his wife, can see ghosts. And he and his cadre of three spirits that follow him around are trying to figure out why these mysterious deaths are happening around him where numbers are carved into the deceased foreheads, just like his dead wife had. Oh my God, let me start over. Start over. I love okay. it. Okay. <laughs> All right. From the top. Frank Bannister. Oh. <laughs> oh my God. How do I even describe this movie? This fucking movie, man. Okay. All right. I'm going to start from a different angle. Maybe that'll make it better. Okay. Okay. <laughs> There is a Grim Reaper figure that is going around killing people and carving numbers into their forehead. And these deaths are happening mysteriously and coincidentally around Frank Bannister, Michael J. Fox's character. His wife died in a car accident very suspiciously where her, fi- where her head was also carved into with a number. Frank teams up with Lucy, this like hot doctor, I guess, after her husband dies also mysteriously. (laughs) And Frank can see ghosts also. That's part of this. There's just ghosts all over this movie. (laughs) 
And it turns out that the Grim Reaper character is actually the ghost of this serial killer that wants to like hit a new high score with killing people. And there's a woman who's like helping the serial killer. I don't know. This movie was a lot. That's as much as I can think I can give you. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So Michael J. Fox has this house, right? And it's like sticks. Like it's like half baked. And he built a garden for his wife. No, sorry. He built a platform for his wife to put a garden there and instead installs a basketball court. So that's... (sighs) I'm trying to think. He does this. His wife dies. He feels guilty. He sees other ghosts. He mm-hmm. uses them to to shist people out of their money. Yeah. Like which I thought was clever. Like he actually can see ghosts. He's yeah. like half a con man, right? Mm-hmm. The ghosts are in on it with him. And then there's this FBI agent who is out to get him for the death of his wife. And he's so, so now he's trying to escape this FBI agent as well as this ghost who wants to get him because Mm -hmm. I guess he got in his way. This ghost is motivated by death count. It's, it's really like, there's a lot, there's a lot of pieces. It's messy too. Like, it's yes. tonally messy. Like, you would think that yes. for it being a horror comedy that they would try and hit horror, for one thing. Like, they don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I made Zach watch this with me because I was like, maybe he'll be able to pull something out of this that I couldn't because I watched it twice, Kate. I watched it twice <laughs> and then I had Zach watch it again. <laughs> Nothing. Couldn't pull anything out. I told him the movie starts off at like maybe sea level tops, maybe maybe low sea level. And halfway through, maybe it bumps up to like B level, like low B, because the tone totally shifts into it's trying at that point to be scarier. And I the only reason why I call that out is because of the music. The music changes. The first sure. half of this movie feels like a fucking cartoon with the music and like the car driving around and skidding around all the corners and the jokes from the ghosts are really bad and it's just goofy and zany. It's zany is perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, that like jangly Danny Elfman's score over the hijinks of Michael J. Fox's character. I thought that at first, and I think that you as an audience are supposed to think that he has a drinking problem or there's something wrong with him. And then you find out, no, it's just that he can actually see and interact with ghosts. Oh, it's just Parkinson's. Oh, Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay. With that excellent segue, let's get into the movie background because there is so much that went into this movie which is so surprising to me watching it now because it just feels like a C or a D list movie but then you read the Wikipedia page you read some articles about this movie and it is just wild how much effort was actually put into this thing okay if I had to guess where the budget went I would say Michael J. Fox. And 
maybe the ghost green screen intermixing and the CGI. That's where I would say the budget went. But I still don't understand how it was a $27, $28 million movie. Tell me more, Kate. So you are totally right in the CGI sinking so much of this budget. This movie required more digital effect shots than almost any movie made until 1996. It had 18 months of production work from the company Weta Digital. You know, okay, I was 12. I thought it looked good at the time, but I'm watching it now and it very much looks like these ghosts that are green screened in are not on the same planar field as the living. Like you can tell, I think at one point somebody is like pressing on another body on the ground and it just doesn't, it looks like they're pressing on a dummy shot Mm -hmm. somewhere else because it doesn't match the form of the body. It just looks bad. Yes. Yes. And you have again, hit the nail on the head. The (laughs) scenes where ghosts and human characters had to interact had to be filmed twice once with human characters acting on set and then again with ghost characters acting against a blue screen. And then those scenes were spliced together. And so it took a ton of takes for every single scene with a ghost because Mm. they had to make them match up the timing perfectly so that when they were spliced together, it was as seamless as possible. Oh, boy. Well, that adds up for sure. but. I don't think it really, I don't think it really worked all the time. Okay, that's interesting. Where was this filmed? It was filmed in New Zealand. I assumed it was filmed on the Universal Studio lot. Oh, really? Wow. It was filmed in New Zealand uh, per Peter Jackson's request. Uh, And they said yes, but you have to make New Zealand look as much like middle America as possible. So they sunk a bunch of money into creating miniatures and sets in New Zealand to make it look like the U.S. Oh, man. I thought it looked like L.A., like a hill over L.A. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I I mean, they did a good job with that. I kind of believed it. I I thought honestly, I thought it was filmed on a on a universal lot it looked very setty so yeah it makes sense that it's all sets (laughs) another fun fact about the movie background and like blows my mind watching this movie and then like hearing all these things you're like wow this was a labor of love and you're like it was a labor of something (laughs) yeah somebody loved it someone loved it peter jackson probably loved it was The principal photography was more than six months long, which is one of the longest shooting schedules ever approved by Universal Pictures. Really? Yeah. You know, I have no good sense of how long shooting should take. Like, to me, hearing six months, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, they, they come in for a few hours, shoot a few things. But, um... I don't have a sense of what's normal for the industry. I've never really looked into it. That I can't. I'm surprised that's the longest. You know, I've seen a handful of movies 
shoot typically in 30 days. Like a bunch of movies will try and shoot in 30 days. That seems to be like a, unless there's extenuating circumstances around environmental factors, like they need rain shots or something and they don't want to film it in an inside set, whatever. Um, the production of the Lord of the Rings movies, so all three of them were right. shot continuously um, over a 14-month time period. So they shot all yeah. three Lord of the Rings movies in 14 months, and they made The Frighteners in six months. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Thank you for that context. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Peter Jackson. <laughs> wow. That's a little too long for this movie. Thinking about this movie taking six months to do principal photography and then another 18 months to finish the special effects, it's a really long time. It is. It sounds like the length of time maybe you would expect an animated film to be produced in. Which this is like not far off for the time. And yeah, to be fair... This is something that happens a lot is that you go back and you watch old movies that were really remarkable for their time through our like current lens and it feels so shallow or so weak because we're so used to like what CGI and stuff looks like now. Critics loved the way this movie looked. That's like one of the unanimous things that people say is that this movie looked wow. fantastic for the time because no one had done this much digital effects work ever in a movie before. Oh, man. Okay, that makes me feel a lot better about remembering thinking the ghosts look good because they must have at the time because now they look so damn terrible. <laughs> It's cool that Michael J. Fox was in this, given what we know about his disease that he's currently living with. I just kept thinking about this while watching the movie, and I thought it was really tragic. And that probably really biased my watch of this movie, to be honest, is Michael J. Fox was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 1991. I didn't realize this, but he did not come out to the public that he had Parkinson's until 1998. And so there's a seven-year stretch in his career where he was still making movies, still acting, and just, you know, degeneratively suffering from Parkinson's. And this movie, of course, came out in 1996. I wanted to make sure this wasn't his last movie because that would have been really sad. And it's not. He's still in movies today. He's still getting acting gigs, which I'm really glad about i mean he's a he seems like such a nice guy he's he's a good actor this is why actors delay coming out about these things right because they don't want to be called from the herd they still want to act we kind of see this with bruce willis he's kind of losing it right now but he's still doing like cd movies and things like that until he can't anymore because he just loves acting so I'm really glad that Michael J. Fox is still acting and able to laugh a little bit. Have you seen the Larry David episode with Michael J. Fox as his upstairs neighbor? I haven't. And it's on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yes. Yes. He plays an upstairs neighbor and doesn't like Larry David because nobody does. 
uh, and apparently, you know, like in the episode, he's like stomping around on the top level. And when Larry David confronts him about it, he's like, oh, it's the Parkinson's. <laughs> but every time, every time Larry does something dumb, he he makes it worse. <laughs> That's amazing. It's really funny about Danny Elf because at the beginning of this movie, I was like, oh, this feels very Beetlejuicy, like glowing text and mm-hmm. the way it's panning over what I assume are miniatures. And the music was a little bit Beetlejuicy and it's Danny Elfman. But the uh, the zaniness I I could have done without. I would love to tie the zaniness of the Danny Elfman score to talking about the comedy in this movie in general. Quote, unquote. <laughs> this movie, it hit me that it was slapstick. And I was like, oh, it's slapstick, which is very hit or miss for me. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of slapstick humor. Who drove me nuts initially, and I was like, please do not let this be what the tone is for the rest of this movie, was Ray, the guy whose yard he crashes through. Mm-hmm. And he's like obsessed with his lawn and he's wearing a very 90s sweatshirt. I could not stand that character. And he's in the whole movie. He is the dumb jock boyfriend who dies on the rowing machine, of course. I felt like they were trying to spoof like fitness culture or something with this guy who's just like obsessed with his body and constantly working out. But... And his lawn. He's one of these lawn guys from I, – I, I guess there's still guys like this, but boy, I hate lawn people. <laughs> Maybe it's just because I'm from California and I'm like, hey, stop watering your lawn all the time. <laughs> but man, lawn people drive me nuts. Yeah, I was not thrilled when he died and turned into a ghost. <laughs> oh, because we were stuck with him. Yeah, because yeah, then he was just kind of hanging around. And I got to say, I didn't love the ghosts. I don't think that the humor hit for me on any of them. And for several of them was quite distasteful. I didn't get the name and I didn't look it up, but the 70s black guy was particularly irritating. And when I made Zach watch this, he was like, I'm annoyed by the character. Like, he's just not funny in general. And I'm also annoyed at the racism behind this character. I'm annoyed at everything. Like, there's nothing to like about that ghost. Yeah, it felt it felt racist and just deeply unfunny. Like, he was just portraying a loud black guy who was wearing a disco suit. And I was like, is this and what we're fro. doing? <laughs> in an afro in 1996, is this what we're doing? <laughs> Frank tries to like sweep it under the rug. He's like, well, sorry, you died in the 70s. So you're going to be a caricature (laughs) your whole death, your whole afterlife. John Astin's character, the Old West ghost, who I think they just call the judge, Mm -hmm. also hated this guy. He just like was very gross. It was a very like horny old man ghost. (laughs) I was like, I don't like this guy either. None of them. I mean, the third one, I guess he was the least bad. <laughs> He's the least bad, but also the most forgettable. Like, 
I mean, they all have a shtick that they're doing, right? This guy is like a nerdy. He's kind of squeamish. He's not a jock, but he has an athletic jacket, Mm -hmm. right? Like he has a varsity jacket. He's probably a mathlete. Um, Also, the bloodhound looked so bad. It was just Mm. a CGI dog. It was not a real dog spliced with CGI. It was just all CGI, and you could really tell. It was really bad looking. So the going a step back into the movie background for a quick second. So Weta Digital, who did all the CGI work on this movie, had never done CGI work before. Wow. So they primarily worked on prosthetics and practical effects. And this is Peter Jackson's company. He owns this company. And so he wanted to bring them in. He owns Weta. I'm pretty sure he does. Let me look it up real quick. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. I'm learning so much (laughs) with this episode about this terrible movie. Uh, Yeah, it's owned by Peter Jackson. It was founded by him, too. Oh, oh my God, Kate. Yep. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Yeah. So Weta, what was Weta's, now I'm like, forget this movie. What was Weta's first project? It was, yeah, Heavenly Creatures was the first movie that they worked on, which what is a Peter Jackson that? movie. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Very cool little factoid. I wanted to chat through the ghosts and how they are able to interact with the physical realm because they seem to have a lot of flexibility here. <laughs> I agree. It's very interesting. It seems like they have um like a non-Newtonian fluid type <laughs> relationship with the physical world, like an oobleck, if you know what oobleck is. Um where if they encounter a physical barrier in a specific way they can't pass through it like a wall or a door or they get stuck in it but if they're not careful or paying attention they will just corporeally fall through it notably when michael j fox turns into a ghost which he does twice in this movie (laughs) many times (laughs) He falls willy nilly. He falls through the floor until he can like kind of regain his senses and then he stops falling through the floor, but then he's kind of coming in and out through walls because he doesn't have a total grasp yet on how to use his ghostliness. Yeah, it seems very based on you're right, whether they are paying attention or consciously trying to move through something or not. What really threw me was when Ray is at his own funeral and he, I think he falls or gets knocked into the grave. He goes through the casket. He lands on the dirt floor and then they lower the casket through him. And I was kind of like, what is stopping Ray from falling to the center of the earth (laughs) or something? (laughs) They had already hit their CGI budget. And then they start burying him, and now all of a sudden he can't move through the dirt, right? I think, but uh, Frank helps him out. I I think you're right. I think it's like in their own ghostly mind, like once they're they know where they are and how this all works, then they seem to kind of direct when and where they can go through things. 
Yeah, that's the best way I can square it in my head because there's even like ghost on ghost interactions that don't like totally make sense. Like the Grim Reaper is able to like chop through ghosts with a scythe or just like kind of squish them or burst them like he does with the ghosts in the prison. So that's like an interesting like twist too is that the ghosts can interact with each other. We also see ghosts interacting with humans too. Like the ghosts can like touch humans or it seems like they can at least. Yeah. Johnny Bartlett, for example, is throughout the entire movie reaching into people's chests and squeezing their hearts to death. So ghosts have a lot of power. I was thinking like if this could really happen, how would the human race go on? Because why wouldn't there be serial killer ghosts that go and do this? That's a great question. Also, why is he only doing like one murder every couple of days? Why is he not just like murdering people constantly at all times of day? He's a murderer. And he's a ghost. He doesn't need to like take like bathroom breaks. Like he can just murder all day. <laughs> right. He all he cares about is upping that number. He wants to be like the serial killer with the highest kill count. Uh, on that thread, why doesn't he just kill Patricia's mother? Patricia is his ex-lover from when they were kids, I guess. And she has been having a ghostly relationship with with uh, this guy while he's going out and murdering people but he doesn't take out the mother and the mother is like I want to say she's crazy I get why she's keeping her daughter like locked in the house but also I mean just send her to jail like (laughs) she's a free woman like what do you what are you stopping her from at this point yeah I found that whole subplot very Sorry, confusing. Sorry, that's a lot of questions. No, it is. And I think that <laughs> one of my biggest notes as I was watching this movie was just all of my WTF moments. What what the fuck was going on in this movie? And I think that the subplot with the mom and the daughter where the daughter was Johnny Bartlett's accomplice slash lover and now – She's able to just live in a house as an adult because she was too young to be tried for murdering a dozen people. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. This movie has not met the Central Park Four (laughs) because you can definitely get tried for murder as a 15-year-old. I know, right? I think that my biggest what-the-fuck moment in this movie was – When they decided that they were going to cryo-freeze Frank to give him a near-death experience, basically a death experience, so that he could become a ghost and try and figure out what was happening with the Grim Reaper. In what world is this a good idea? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, let's not forget that initially he was going to shoot himself in the head with a gun. Or freezing and stuff. Right. That is a very key detail. There's a lot of guns in this movie. Oh, my God. Guns are always so funny in the 90s. <laughs> yes. That FBI agent with, what was it, an Uzi? 
But um, yeah, yeah, back to this. <laughs> There's so many guns. <laughs> Movies play with this idea of like bringing somebody back to life after killing them. I'm trying to think where else we've seen it. We've I've seen it in the abyss. The abyss is the big one. Um, I think the OA plays with this. It's a show, um, on Netflix that was canceled, but the OA plays with this idea a lot. And we also saw this trope being used in the Fear Street series by the kids. <laughs> Kate, resuscitation rates are just not as reliable as Hollywood would like you to think. I wanted to ask you really quick, just off the cuff, what do you think the successful resuscitation rate is in general? Let's say you're not at a hospital and somebody is being given CPR. What do you think the success rate is? Uh, 15%. Okay, 15%. That's not bad. Um, the actual rate of survival when you're out of the hospital is 12%. It's very oh, okay. low. Yeah, that's very low. Yeah, right. Um, but I mean... This movie would have you think it's like 100%. They're very confident going into it. Yes. They're not worried at all. She's like, I'm a doctor. I know how this works. <laughs> okay. What do you think the success rate is in a hospital? Oh, 70%. 70%. So there was a team of researchers from the University of California, um, where they did a survey of 500 different people to assess what they expected for the success rate. And it sort of varied between 19 and 75%, big oh, range. Big range. But it's, yeah, but it's actually closer to 24 to 40%. So okay. less than half, even in a hospital setting, are successful. Wow. That's, yeah. So frightening. It is. <laughs> they don't tell you that in CPR class. I think because they don't want people to go like, well, this person's probably going to die anyway, so I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> I was reading that The Abyss does one of the best jobs in Hollywood of showing what CPR actually looks like because it's, it's you know, you crush somebody's rib cage trying to get to the heart and you don't stop. Even if it looks like they're dead, you keep going. It's definitely not something you should gamble on like they do all willy-nilly in this movie. Aside from administering CPR and the defibrillator, Michael J. Fox is put into like a hypothermic state in the freezer. Mm -hmm. And so that adds another layer on top of it. Kate, I wanted to ask you a quick quiz. What should the body temperature be before attempting fibrillation? probably normal human temperature so like at least 96 <laughs> if somebody is hypothermic and needs to be resuscitated you just go for it you don't wait okay. if you need to use a defibrillator you use it but if it's not working then you should focus on warming the body up to at least 86 degrees fahrenheit okay All right. 30 degrees celsius yeah and then you'll you'll get a better reaction out of it so learned a little bit of that from this movie. But anyway, Michael J. Fox is turned into a ghost twice in this movie and twice he's brought back successfully. 
once with the very unlikely odds of being resuscitated, and then the second with the even more unlikely odds of his dead wife being super cool about the fact that he's got a new girlfriend and sending him back to the earthly plane of existence. Oh my God. He goes all the way to heaven and meets his dead wife. And then they're like, oh, it's just not your time. So you go back. I mean, this is very convenient at the end. I didn't love it. Which is interesting. I didn't either. I, you know, I was wondering, like, what happens to the ghosts when they get killed by other ghosts? Like, where do they end up? Are they just gone? Because the ghosts have one shot every year to, like, get back into heaven to follow the light. And apparently they just end up in heaven. Right. <laughs> apparently it's not a big deal. Yeah. There was, like, no consequence. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So there's no... It totally removed all of the anxiety one would feel watching their ghost friends die. Like, I was like, oh, these ghosts are just like forever in limbo now. But no, like they're just they're just made it to heaven or hell or wherever they're supposed to go. Yeah, it really sucks the wind out of the Grim, the Grim Reaper's sails. I was not expecting to see giant hell worms sucking Bartlett and Patricia back into hell. I was like, where did this come from? Right? They got so close to heaven. I was like, these worms needed to show up faster. Like, <laughs> they should have shown up as soon as they entered the portal to, you know, the afterlife. My most what the fuck moment is again relating to a ghost and it's when that ghost was having sex with the mummy and he mm. says I like it when they lie still like that Ugh. <laughs> I was like that's not okay it. it was such a gross unfunny joke <laughs> yeah I did not like that and I didn't understand why it needed to be in the movie just like ghost rape I don't know weird yeah Lots of like kind of off-color jokes. Like I felt like this movie, like we mentioned the tone being funky, but like it feels like it goes between like Looney Tunes, like goofiness to like really adult off-color humor in some of these scenes. And it's just very surprising. I think in the 90s it was funny though. Like those types of jokes were all over the place. I mean, we... When we watched Scary Movie, we saw that um, mm -hmm. in, what was it, Next Friday or Friday After Next? Which one? Mm -hmm. I forget. I think it was Next Friday, the Christmas movie. Somebody's getting raped in the bathroom for comedy. <laughs> it's just yeah. like rape is a funny thing in the 90s, I guess. That's very true. Awful. <laughs> yeah, it's funny to go back and watch these movies that were like popular at the time or not so popular like this one and just kind of see the repeated jokes that are being made we just wouldn't see those today how about that fbi agent he what was... about him <laughs> i don't even know what to say i don't understand how that was supposed to be an fbi agent is that I i've never seen that kind of tortured portrayal of an fbi agent before. Oh, no, it was really weird. So he ripped his shirt open at one point and he's got like 
all this scarring and like satanic marking all over him. And he says, my body is a roadmap of pain. And I just was like, what are we doing? And also he had like kind of a Hitler haircut. He did. Yeah. What was the significance of the markings on his chest? Like, what are we supposed to get from that? So I missed this. I'm going to own up to this. And I missed this while watching the movie. But in the Wikipedia page, it said that Dahmer's was, as part of the FBI, like working undercover to like work on like satanic cults. And he ended up being a victim of the Manson family in the 60s. Did you get that in the movie? Okay. No, I knew he was part of like an X-Files-ish paranormal sect um, uh, division of the FBI. But I, I, the Manson thing totally went over my head. I didn't catch it either. And I felt like I was trying to understand what was going on with this FBI agent because I felt like oh, maybe they're just trying to generically make him into an antagonist and that's why he's got a Hitler haircut. And then I thought, okay, based on the Wikipedia page, if he was involved in all of these cults, maybe he, you know, had some of the Manson white supremacist stuff rub off onto him. (laughs) Manson was a white supremacist. (laughs) He also couldn't handle women screaming. I mean, what was that about? What did that have to do with anything? Or Manson or the marks on his chest? Like, it's just random, weird characteristics given to this guy to make him creepy, I guess. I I was happy when he died because I hated him. I hated the character. But honestly, I hated a lot of these characters. I was happy when most of them died. I will say that I felt like some actors in this movie seemed to understand how batshit crazy this movie was. And so their acting was like high camp. And I felt like the guy who played Dahmer's really leaned into the silliness yes. of the role in the movie. His his facial expressions really reminded me of Bruce Campbell in the Evil Dead series. It's that like overly animated and just like highly, highly characterized kind of role. So I did actually find him entertaining, even if I didn't like his character. The actor that he reminded me of was Jim Carrey. Mm-hmm. And Jim Carrey, for me personally, has not aged well, like his early stuff. It's just not what I find funny anymore. And so he kind of just rubbed me the wrong way. I did not find him entertaining. I appreciated his effort. Like he was giving this role his all as a weird FBI guy. Like, great. Good for you. But I hate the character. (laughs) I hate this. And I couldn't enjoy it. It would be extremely difficult to take this FBI agent seriously, I guess, until he pulls out the Uzi. <laughs> I know. How, like, Acme Looney Tunes was that moment when he just pulls out this giant gun? Ridiculous. Like, I don't even think FBI uses those types of guns. <laughs> no. Out of all the FBI agents portrayed in Hollywood, who would you say is your favorite? Special Agent Dale Cooper. Of course. Oh, yeah. Twin Peaks. Yeah. I love Twin Peaks. Mr. Mayor from Portlandia. (laughs) Yeah. On the Wikipedia page, a critic said that they felt like The Frighteners was 
a mix of Ghostbusters and Twin Peaks. And I was like, do not sully both of those. <laughs> there you go. Kate. In comparison <laughs> to this movie. Yeah. If, if Ghostbusters and Twin Peaks had a baby, it'd be Frighteners. <laughs> Maybe the Frighteners would be the middle child. Um, which FBI agent is your favorite? Uh, I am torn between Dana Scully and Clarice Starling, mostly Clarice. because they seem normal. Like they don't take any shit. They do their jobs well. I mean, oh, my God, the shit Dana puts up with from Mulder in the X-Files. I I remember as a kid watching the X-Files and being team Mulder like, duh, of course, there's <laughs> aliens like, come on, guys, just the truth is out there. And rewatching, just being like, Dana, how do you put up with this dude? He is just like not following protocol. He is careless, like, and all he cares about are is his sister. Like he's obsessed with finding his sister. Um, he's really not an accurate portrayal, I would imagine, of somebody in the FBI. I did want to look up a few Hollywood myths about FBI portrayal because this movie seemed to be particularly egregious with it this guy seemed insane and what would you say like if you had to guess what would you say is the biggest myth when you see fbi agents in hollywood probably how frequently they're called in to help the local police force solve crimes i feel like that's actually probably not very common that's a really good point. And the FBI jurisdiction is way more limited than what you see in Hollywood. So they really only handle federal crimes that another agency isn't already handling. They track down serial killers, violent interstate crime, and the murder of law enforcement officers. So really specific interstate violations. And then national security threats. So they probably wouldn't be here <laughs> for this crime. <laughs> um, yeah, and typically Hollywood shows them at odds with the local law enforcement when they're brought on. But um, I did look up the what the FBI has to say about some of these Hollywood myths. And it's really funny. We'll link to the page on our blog. This page reads like propaganda, like like dare propaganda. It's just like, come on, guys, we're the FBI. We follow the rules. We do this. And, and it's hunky-dory. Like, it feels very, we're trying to convince you of this. But I, I'm going to go with it because it is on the FBI site. But uh, three of the biggest Hollywood myths are friction with the local law. They usually work well together. Um, the speed of forensics is much slower than what you see on TV. And noobs like Clarice Starling do not get thrown in the deep end on cases that are currently happening. That's so interesting. I love, I love how this movie was like a launching point for us to both learn so much about things that are like only tangentially related to this movie. <laughs> I mean, we had to get something out of it, right? This is true. And I do feel like I'm getting a lot now. <laughs> oh, yay. 
I'm so glad we did this. Kate, I have to ask, if you could change the ending to this movie, would you? And what would you change it to? Yes, 100%. I think that the moment when Frank is in heaven and he realizes his ghost friends are there and not trapped in limbo and his dead wife is there waiting for him, that even when she says, no, you still have a life to live, he would say, my life is with you. And he would stay with his dead wife in heaven and he would die. And then his new girlfriend on earth could just go and live her life (laughs) without this crazy man. (laughs) That's my rewritten ending. (laughs) That's so romantic. (laughs) How would you change? I really... I really wanted this movie to get dark at the end, and I really feel like they missed an opportunity. If I could rewrite the ending, Frank would have convinced or tricked uh, Patricia and Bartlett into the portal somehow without him touching it. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want him going to heaven and seeing his wife and his friends, his ghost friends. I want those two to get sent to hell thinking they're going to heaven. He stays behind as a ghost, doesn't get to come back, and and Lucy becomes the new huckster with him as the ghost running the cons. Fun. Yeah. That would be fun. I would have preferred that. That would have been a really nice, I think, character arc for him to become the sidekick and yeah, just continue on the tradition. That That's fun. I think that your ending is tonally more appropriate for the rest of the movie. Mine is just like, you have been mourning your dead wife this whole movie <laughs> and just be with her in heaven for God's sake. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Which I also understand. <laughs> Well, Kate, we didn't like this movie, but was there anything about this movie that you did like? Yeah, I do have to admit that I liked the part when Frank was turned into a ghost for the second time, and he literally ripped Patricia's soul out of her body, and that's how he killed her. It was great. That is pretty cool. Yeah, it was really cool. I I like how when he goes back to basically scam Ray and Lucy. The bed is shaking, like everything's floating around in the air. The cupboards are banging. And it's not a trick. Like he actually has ghosts. I appreciated that this movie worked that in. Like he's not just a con man. So as much as I hated the ghosts, I was glad that they were there. I can see that. It gives it some more weight. Well, we did not like this movie. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. Let us know in the comments. We will see you next time for an all-new movie that we are very excited to cover. Megan. It's me. (laughs) We'll get you then. This was Not Quite Dead. Check out our other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Not Quite Dead Podcast. 
and on Twitter at NQD underscore podcast. Follow our blog for bonus content at notquitedeadpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. And happy watching. <laughs>